The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, August 8th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump got poetic with the North Koreans today. Fire, fury, frankly, power. Better for him than Comey Russia every hour. But it's odd that Trump would evoke fire, well, in a non-reality show setting. Normally, he just expresses disappointment at disloyalty and lets the objects of his derision twist uncomfortably, right? Doesn't go right for the firing. And in the spiel, I promise, I will get all geopolitical slash rhetorical on your collective took-eye. But I just want to get economic here in this space. This escalation was in words, but it was over money. Trump was responding to Kim Jong-un saying the U.S. will pay dearly for economic sanctions adopted by the U.N. Security Council. Now, I looked up North Korea's economy. It is an estimated $28 billion. I know you know what to do with that. No, no one does, right? Don't you hate it on the news when they say $28 billion and then the only thing they could do to help you with contacts is to say, that's billion with a B. Oh, now I get it because you told me what the word started with. Yes. So what do we know about $28 billion? For a country, it's not a lot. That's not with an N and lot with an L. Every state in the United States has a GDP of at least $28 billion. Rhode Island, which I chose because it's a small state, has more than double the GDP of North Korea. That's a whole country with 45 million people. I was just reading about how Neymar's transfer fees were worth $600 million. Do you know him? He's a soccer player guy. Anyway, he's one guy. He's one guy. He'd be 2% of the GDP of North Korea. Here's a comparison. In the United States, agriculture counts for 1% of our GDP. So if Neymar were North Korean, he'd be worth more to them than agriculture is to the U.S. The average NFL team is worth $2.3 billion. So you could take any 12 NFL teams. You don't even have to take an entire conference, right? You could take the AFC, but leave the AFC North. Okay, Steeler, Ravens, Bengals fans. Who's the other one? Browns. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. And, and just swap those 12 teams for the entire North Korean GDP. On the Forbes richest list, there are 23 people who are worth more than the country of North Korea last year. None of them are as big as pains in the ass. And from what I hear, Bezos can be kind of a big pain in the ass. Bill Gates could tomorrow double everyone in North Korea's income and the worth of all their output and still keep $30 billion. What this means is that North Korea makes nothing. It is worth nothing. But what a headache for this big pile of worthless nothing. Because a one guy, one, the whole problem is one guy And this guy could be bought out for peanuts. But of course, that would be a terrible precedent. And we'd never get out of that held hostage with a missile game. So here's what I think you do. Forget Kim Jong-un. Forget maybe his second or third highest general. Those guys are definitely in the tank for Kim Jong-un. Just hire everyone else. Hire away everyone else in the country. The guy who runs the missile, but his uncle who works in a rice paddy. Just hire everyone else. And I really do think after like the third or fourth general, like general number 12, you know, he probably thinks he's a powerful North Korean, but he's not that powerful. Kim Jong-un probably keeps him swaddled in like the North Korean version of luxury. But don't you think that guy would trade it all for a steady civil service gig in Iowa? 
instead of dealing with the stress of angering your boss and getting assassinated by massage girls or shot with an anti-aircraft gun, we could just hire away the whole country tomorrow. They are easily poachable. They can be bought for a song. Well, everyone can, but the direct descendant of Kim Jong-sung. On the show today, I tip my hat about what the spiel is going to be. But first, somewheres and anywheres, this is the idea that Trump supporters, Le Pen backers, Brexit voters feel attached to the place of their birth, the country, often the county of their origin, whereas the constituencies on the opposite end of those ideas feel more like citizens of the world. It is, in short, a way to explain populism. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In the last election in America, it wasn't the most prominent slogan, but it got said again and again. And I thought if Democrats didn't have an answer to this Republican talking point, they're not going to win many future elections. And the point was this, either borders mean something or they don't. It's not the kind of twisted tautology that is trying to trick the opposition. It has an appeal and a sensibility to most voters. Either borders mean something or they don't. So in America, I think we're struggling with that. Now in Britain, Brexit was a consequence of that idea. And in fact, so many of the populist movements throughout the globe reflect to some extent that. It's one of the topics in The Road to Somewhere, The Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics by David Goodhart. He's based in Britain. I think that his assessment of populism in general applies throughout the world. In fact, he writes about Donald Trump a lot. Hello, Mr. Goodhart. How are you? Hello there. Hi, I'm fine. So the two terms uh, that you use to describe the two warring factions uh, aren't two parties, but they're the somewheres and the anywheres, two types of people. Could you describe each? Yeah, I've been looking at the value divides in British society, although I think this does apply to most rich democracies and uh, in, in somewhat different ways. So I talk about the anywhere people who have become so dominant in the last 
generation or two are the highly educated, the mobile, they value openness, autonomy, they can ride social change, social fluidity comfortably. They tend to have relatively weak group attachments, but this group is about 20-25% of the population. On the other hand, you have the group I call the somewheres, who tend to be much less well-educated, much more rooted to place, tend to value security, familiarity, tend to be more wary of social change, and also tend to have much stronger group attachments. They tend to have stronger national identities, ethnic identities, or, or just kind of connections to sort of people like us or people from around here. And they value that. And both of these worldviews, both of them are perfectly decent and legitimate, at least in their mainstream forms. The problem is they are kind of fundamentally opposed to each other at, at a certain level. And that is what has kind of messed up our politics. And part of my book is about is to, to describe these differences, but also look at how we can create a kind of new, a new settlement between these two groups. Because what's happened is the anywheres have become too politically and culturally and economically dominant, and their priorities have over-dominated our societies and somewheres have sort of have felt excluded and they've kind of lashed out. As an anywhere, a self-identified anywhere, who, like many anywheres, started out as a somewhere and then maybe went to a university and started reading uh, certain periodicals and then became an anywhere, I took the book and the prescriptions to mean here's how anywheres can understand these people in a context other than they're just racist and they're just xenophobic and perhaps talk to them better and perhaps also craft some policies that actually would appeal to them more, not just trick them, but appeal to them. Is that the primary uh, target of the book, Anywhere's But Like Me? I think that puts it rather well, actually. Yes, I, I suppose I'm appealing for a more kind of emotionally intelligent Anywhere class to, to recognize their own domination, that indeed their over-domination of the society, and realize that they, uh, you know, that their priorities are not necessarily the priorities of everybody else. Actually, in a sense, trying to get anywhere is to practice what they preach. They preach liberalism and pluralism, but actually they often practice a very narrow form of self-interested liberalism. And I think they can do better than that. Well, what policies? Trade policies? Immigration policies? How would What would be an immigration policy that would appeal as fair to anywheres, but also equally appeal to somewheres? I certainly think anywheres have been very insouciant about immigration. They've regarded it as, you know, probably culturally beneficial and certainly don't feel economically threatened by it. Some ways I think have a, have an inherent interest in relatively low levels of immigration. They have a much greater attachment to, to national social contracts. They depend on public services and the welfare state more. They do not want to have competition in those areas uh, and they do not want to have competition for basic jobs either. And they, they like familiarity and stability and neighborliness and and don't move around in the way anywheres do. So they, they value community more. They carry community more sort of in their gut and so are more disturbed and discomforted when communities change very fast. But there is a way of squaring the circle, I think, that would also satisfy anxieties about wanting to retain an open society, both economically and culturally. And the way you do it is by making immigration overwhelmingly temporary. This way, you don't become stale or rigid as a society. You benefit from that cultural and economic openness, but you also answer the fundamental democratic majority desire for slower sort of social and cultural change. So is your contention that recasting the immigration system wouldn't just be uh, a sop to the 
to the somewheres wouldn't just be saying we address, we understand your travails, but would in fact change their lives so much that they would see the effects of it. See, I'm just thinking your book, as you mentioned, is speaking to anywheres. And they probably, in what you're asking, they would probably hear what you're saying and saying, well, we could debate the economics of it, but it does seem to violate some of our values in terms of openness, xenophobia, playing up to clannishness. You know, it is a vi- it is a violation of the anywhere's identity as much as everything you were just talking about before is a violation of the somewhere's identity. Yeah, there are some fundamental divisions, and I you know I fundamentally believe that countries belong to their citizens. Countries do not belong to the whole world. America belongs to Americans. Britain belongs to the existing citizens of Britain. And we should therefore choose who comes into our country. But the idea of at least America is that when you say it belongs to our citizens, the definition of citizen uh, isn't static. No, nor is it in Britain, nor is it anywhere. But so what? I mean, well, I guess the tension is, so is that something to fight against or is that something to embrace? Perhaps you're saying all, all you're doing is you're diagnosing it. Once the ethnic majority becomes smaller, there will be reactions. I would say Democrats in America would say, which is a great thing. And uh, Trump voting Americans would say it's not a great thing. Democrats would really say it's a great thing that we no longer have an ethnic majority. I, I, I think some of them may say that. I think that's quite an extreme view. Well, maybe that's why the Democratic Party is shrinking, because if you to be a Democrat, if you have to say that, yeah, maybe it's not a view that the majority of Americans would share, especially the white Americans. Yeah, possibly even minority Americans, too. I mean, minorities have an interest in instability. I mean, perhaps in some ways more than majorities, after all, in some sort of sense, they're more vulnerable than than people who belong to the majority. But we're talking about familiarity, really. We're talking about the, the, the desire for community. I mean, one of the, I think, more original things in my book is about how somewheres still have a kind of a, a group instinct that anyways have often lost. These st- things still matter to them, but they're not on the whole xenophobic. That you can, you can both believe in the importance of group identification, uh, you know, attachment to place, and you can accept the modern equalities. Actually, the vast majority of, of somewheres have gone along with the what one might call the great liberalization in cultural matters in the last 40 or 50 years. I mean, much of, I mean, all these labels I'm throwing around, by the way, I mean, I've invented the labels. I have not invented the value groups. They really are there in the things like the British Social Attitude Survey. You, know, you, you have to kind of interrogate them in a certain way. You have to ask questions about openness, about groups and so on. But this is where liberalism, I think, has gone wrong. That It's been too hostile to, to group attachments or it's seen group attachments as inherently hostile to the modern equalities, to race equality, to gender equality, and so on. Uh, And I don't think that is necessarily the case. Indeed, it mustn't be allowed to be the case, because very large numbers of our fellow citizens are going to still find value in their various group attachments. I think the anywheres, as uh, I as one, uh, sometimes do not understand the somewheres and sometimes tell themselves they don't have to understand the somewheres because of racism or xenophobia, why understand them? They're just wrong for these reasons. I think the anywheres do go too far. We saw the result of that in the election, not understanding the majority of people you have to agree with. But when you say that you don't want society to just be a random collection of individuals, 
I think that the anywheres aren't that. It's just that the way they've collected themselves isn't based on the boundaries in which they were born. They were perhaps collected around an idea. I live in Brooklyn and the people who live there are diverse, but many of them move there in pursuit generally of an idea that you can deride as cosmopolitan, not you, but Stephen Miller can deride as cosmopolitan, but it's based on an idea. And if you look at Queens, the most polyglot and uh, multi-ethnic county in America, possibly the world, generally true, uh, founded around an idea as opposed to founded around an ethnicity or geographic barriers. And I think maybe it's different for the United States because we are the only country who was founded based on an idea rather than boundaries or ethnicity. But I think still that's probably true in America. I, I, I think the somewhere is in the anywheres or especially the anywheres need to understand the somewhere is more, but being in anywhere is not random. No, and, and I, I don't mean to imply that. Uh, what I would say in answer to that is that, yes, it's uh, anywheres do also come from somewhere. You're right. It's not necessarily the somewhere that they came from originally. They have chosen their places to live. They, then they go and live where other anywheres live. And they've chosen, these are the chosen networks rather than the given networks. Although in some cases it seems thrust upon them. Like if you are a lesbian, gay, or transgender youth in many a somewhere community, you mostly move to an anywhere community. And I find it fascinating that so many people like me who grew up middle class or sometimes working class, the only difference between them and the people they went to high school with is that they went away and saw more of the world and got an education and chose to identify identify as an anywhere. And, and that is true here as well. But in a way, this is a problem. I mean, it's, this is kind of exacerbating the, the dividing lines when we need to be crossing them and finding bridges. And, um, and, and I, you know, and uh, well, I mean, how, how we do that is a, is a separate and, and very big question. Um, by the way, one thing I just wanted to add, it's actually borrowed from the American social scientist Talcott Parsons. He did come up with this very useful distinction between people with achieved and ascribed identities. All of us sort of have a mixture of the two, but if you're an anywhere, you generally, you have a sense of, of kind of inventing yourself in some ways or reinventing yourself. If on the other hand, your a much larger sense of yourself comes from where you come from, comes from your group and your place, your identity itself is much more exposed to being discomforted by change. But the world is changing, and of course, uh, we could do whatever we want to stand athwart history and shout no. So what are the long-term trends of what happens to the anywheres and the somewheres? I mean, if you had to bet on one growing and one shrinking, are there different short-term and long-term forecasts? The, the anywhere numbers have increased rapidly in recent years. That The somewheres have been shrinking somewhat. But I don't think it's true to say that anywheres will sweep all before them, because I think there are quite sort of hard barriers, ultimately relating to how the majority of people want to live. And I think that there will always be a critical mass of people who will prefer the, you know, the, the comforts of security and, uh, and stability and, and, you know, cognitive ability. You know, I mean, there's so much of what has changed, actually, in the last um, 30 or so years has been about the way in which cognitive abilities become the kind of gold standard of human esteem. But don't forget that, you know, by definition, half of the population are always in the bottom half of the cognitive ability spectrum. And they still are 
humans and they, they deserve respect and that they all have a vote as well. Yeah. And if we live in democracy, uh, they will d- dictate where the country goes. Uh, quick questions. I don't know if you disclosed this. Did you vote for Brexit? No, I didn't. I was I was a, a reluctant Remainer. I'm, I'm not unhappy about Brexit, though. Uh, I, I think it was actually rather a kind of heroic act. So in the book, you consider the Trump phenomenon, but you didn't have much time to assess it. He's been uh, president for seven months. But you do offer a categorization of different populist parties. These were European. Uh, first were the mainstream parties. I think it's generally a reference to how viable they are electorally because UKIP's in there, the five-star movement's in there. But you also note that who you call mainstream parties are uh, they, they're appealing to decent populist somewheres. Then you have anti-Islamist parties. Then you have the reformed far right. You know, maybe they started off as uh, neo-Nazis. And then you have the unreformed far right, which would be, you know, just kind of those mobs, the Golden Dawn in Greece. Now, uh, where would you put Trump? And take keep in mind that if one would think, well, he doesn't, or Trumpism doesn't have the roots in neo-Nazism, well, consider Steve Bannon, consider some of his advisors. But seven months in, where would you put Trumpism as part of the populism compared to Europe? Well, he'd obviously be at the very respectable end of populism. He obviously likes sort of tweaking the nose of the liberal establishment. I mean, he deliberately goes out of his way to sort of say shocking things. But I think he, you know, he does, he does, he does give voice to. A substantial group of Americans who felt they didn't really have a voice until he came along. But I mean, yeah, I suppose you know, in terms of an interest in the nation, uh, still an enormously important and viable thing. Uh, you know, his, his opposition to post-nationalism and certain kinds of internationalism, his uh, sort of uh, uh, his support, at least at the rhetorical level, for people in the bottom half of the income spectrum, you know, the, the people who've suffered from that wage stagnation in the US. And a lot of a lot of the world has been free riding on America in some ways. And I think um, for America to do something about it is perfectly legitimate. And I think I think there are a lot of strong intellectual arguments against completely free trade. I think some more controlled forms of trade are are not only legitimate, but but desirable, actually. The Road to Somewhere, The Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics by David Goodhart. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. And now the spiel. Donald Trump chose not to send a raven, but rather he sang a song of fire and fury directed at the hermit king in the east. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. He has been very threatening uh, beyond a normal statement. And as I said, they will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power the likes of which this world has never seen before. Frankly, Power, in case we were unclear on the fire and fury, what more general category might those alliterative ultimatums fall under? Power, thank you. Thank you for being frank. Donald Trump has power. And give him credit. In that fire and fury clip, he didn't even cite his historic win over Hillary Clinton. He could have. It would have been totally germane and on message to talk about that huge win in Ohio and Michigan, but he chose not to, which is showing restraint and focus. And that right there, it's the General Kelly difference. Now, in all seriousness, this was a stupid thing to say. 
Before Trump was even inaugurated, Greg Sargent of the Washington Post interviewed Jeffrey Lewis, a nuclear nonproliferation expert at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. He predicted this whole thing. Lewis said, imagine if we're in a crisis. If he recklessly tweets, okay, this was spoken but not tweeted, people could read these things in the worst possible light. The North Koreans have a plan to use nuclear weapons very early in a conflict. They're not going to wait around. If they think we're going, they're going to use their nuclear weapons against South Korea and Japan. Lewis notes, this is from the Washington Post article, Lewis notes that imprecise language in an errant bellicose Trump tweet particularly amid rising tensions, could conceivably amount to, quote, an accidental assassination threat. Imagine if the North Koreans are looking for any sign that we're about to attack as their signal that they have to go. Trump says the wrong thing, and that gives the impression that we're about to act. The North Koreans, according to Lewis, might, quote, decide not to wait around to find out if it's true and might hit targets throughout South Korea and Japan where the U.S. military forces are stationed. So that was back in December. That was before Trump became president, after he was elected, basically predicted exactly what would be going on in seven or eight months. What was Lewis's advice? Three words. Don't say that. Trump always talks about the benefits of unpredictability on the international stage. I interpret this as kind of a pre-post hoc rationalization, like he knows he's going to be foolish. So it's a get out of dunce corner free card. Oh, I'm not being ahistorical. I'm not being dangerous. I'm not being wild. I'm being unpredictable. It's a virtue. But it's not a virtue with the North Koreans. They're the wild ones. We, the United States, need to be resolute and predictable. That so far has kept us out of war. I don't know if you've noticed this, but for as long as I've been alive, probably you too, the North Koreans were the United States enemies. And there have been dust-ups and flare-ups, but no all-out war. Why? Because the North Koreans believe that the United States will attack them mightily if the North Koreans attack us or the South Koreans or Japan. Now, it hasn't prevented the North Koreans from trying to get nuclear weapons, but that's a really rational choice on their part. It's evil, but rational. But if Kim Jong-un wants a missile to ensure his survival as a bully, as a tyrant, whatever, as the dear leader, guess what? The important verbs there are to ensure his survival. He doesn't want to die because you know what? Dying would prevent him from being a bully and a tyrant and a dear leader. All right, this, in a nutshell, this is exactly the balance that the U.S. needs to strike in its rhetoric. You ready? The North Koreans need to think that it is certain that they will be destroyed if they use a nuclear missile, but they never can be allowed to think that it is likely that they will be attacked if they don't use a nuclear weapon. In order to ensure that, we need predictability. I think that words might solve the North Korean problem. Okay, maybe not solve them, but allow for a manageable, livable solution. Those words will include negotiations or concessions. And yeah, definitely as part of that, the United States should communicate resolve and consequence for acting poorly. It will require a bunch of different kinds, perhaps subtle, nuanced words. But the kind of words that will, if there is a solution, the kind of words that we will use are words that move laterally, are words that create room, are words that provide openings. But the kind of words that Trump uses operate on a more restricted vector, they amplify, they emphasize, they turn good into big and big into greatest. They turn steadfast into fire and fury. It is the trade of a poor communicator, or at least a very simple communicator, to only deploy rhetoric that operates on this one continuum. He could turn the volume up 
or he could turn it way up, but he can't do anything to adjust the color or the ratio or the mix or the contrast. President Trump is a words-only president thus far, and domestically, his inability to match words to action has been beneficial to the country, I would say, if harmful to his credibility. But on the international stage, words are action, and a misapplication may not just doom his agenda, but civilization itself. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Mary Wilson. She's an over there. She used to be a somewhere, but she moved. Gist producer Chris Berube is a DeMarcus Ware, eighth on the all-time sack list. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is a bit of an everywhere. In fact, he's been doing 90 Seconds with Slate, available on the Alexa. You can't say that word out loud. Dan Schrader helped us today. He's an outerwear, specifically culottes. He rocks them. The Gist. We're less of a who, what, when, where, and more of a why, how podcast. Oom peru, da peru, du peru, and thanks for listening.